Welcome into the Wednesday Bible Study here from the Broadcast Plaza and Teleport. Uh, again, uh, the, the empty room. Certainly uh, miss all the guys who are here every Wednesday. Been hearing from some of you. Be sure and check in. Let me know how you're doing. And then, of course, for those of you that uh, may be watching this for the first time uh, because of the pandemic, you've been given some some extra time. As a matter of fact, I had a I had an email from uh, from a guy uh, Daryl who who just found he just discovered. Uh, this Bible study by simply googling during his time of uh, uh, during the pandemic of you know social distancing and, and being at home and he just googled you know any streaming Bible study that he could find and he found this one and uh, come to find out he was uh, a fan of the show and actually went to school uh, at Sanford University in Birmingham where our show is based out of and where I'm doing this Bible study uh, and he sent this email. Pretty cool because I'd, I'd let him know that we're you know glad to have him. He heard his first uh, uh, Bible study last Wednesday, and he said, I'm going to go back and cover the entire study of John because, as you know, we're getting toward the end of the Gospel of John. He said, it's my favorite book of the Bible. Back in 1980, I was a freshman at Sanford University and attended Shades Mountain Baptist Church, which is my home church. Uh, Dr. Charles Car- Carter, who is the pastor emeritus there, uh, he was the pastor at the time, and he said one Sunday that the Gospel of John, and listen to this, I love this statement from Reverend Carter. He said, and this guy has never forgotten, and he heard it in 1980. He, says, um, he said, the wonderful thing about the Gospel of John was that it was so clear that anyone could read it and understand everything they need to know about following Jesus, yet, which we've discovered, haven't we? It is so profound that you could study it for a lifetime and never exhaust its teachings. He said the day he heard that from Reverend Carter at our church in 1980, uh, he went home and he said, I read the entire Gospel of John that afternoon on my dormitory bed, and that was the day that Jesus became a real person to me instead of a collection of Sunday school stories. So now he's going to go back and, and hear everything we've done up to this point, which you can do too, but I love that statement, clear that anyone can understand it, but so profound uh, you could spend a lifetime and never exhaust all of its teachings. It has been an incredible journey through the Gospel of John, and we're getting toward the end of it. Now, I want you to, uh, to, to make a few notes, things that you need to know, uh, and that is if, uh, if you would like to watch uh, the next man church service that will be at my home church, Shays Mountain Baptist Church, a lot of you that watch this and, and listen to this say, well, I, I don't live around Birmingham, so Shades Mountain Baptist Church and these man church services that you talk about, I can never attend. Well, once again, you know, remember what we talked about last week, God's mercy and God's wrath all happening at the same time. Uh, Now we're going to do a virtual man church that any of you can watch. We have Jason Cook, who will be delivering the message. Uh, Pastor Jason Cook is an incredible man of God, an outstanding preacher, and you will get a great message, as will I, from Jason Cook. So uh, if you'll write down this website, and it will be on April the 26th, and we'll do it at our, at our normal time, 6 p.m. Central Time, Sunday night service, uh, Man Church. Any of you can watch it from anywhere. Uh, write down this website, shades.org, and then slash live, L-I-V-E, shades, S-H-A-D-E-S, shades.org, slash live, Go ahead and get that URL ready, and then uh, on Sunday, April the 26th, uh, at 6 p.m. Central Time, 
we will still have a man church service virtually. Anybody can watch it from anywhere, and we hope that you'll join us. And then after that, we'll be getting into a new study because by then uh, we will be finished with the Gospel of John. Uh, also, don't forget themanchurch.com. Uh, if you'd like to go there, we have all sorts of resources. Maybe you're a church leader watching this or maybe a lay person that does men's ministry at your church or in your community, and you're thinking, well, at some point we're all going to get back together. That's true, but maybe you don't have a men's discipleship strategy. Uh, if you would like one, we have it at themanchurch.com, and you can go ahead and do our curriculum uh, virtually as well, uh, and it'll also be ready for you when we get back to the face-to-face. If you'd like for us to help you, develop that strategy. We have the resources and we have the game plan at themanchurch.com. Let's open in a word of prayer. Let's jump into chapter 19 of the Gospel of John. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for what you did. Uh, Today, Lord, we'll take a hard look uh, at the ultimate, ultimate example of God's mercy and God's wrath being handed out all at the same time uh, when you went to the cross. Uh, Today, we unpack John's account of the crucifixion. May we learn everything that you expect us to learn from this today. You you go on record for how much you love us. And then, of course, we then have to face the question today, do we love you? Do Do we love you? We know you love us, but do we love you? So teach us everything we need to know. And we pray this sort of in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's, let's, let's jump into John chapter 19. So now we know that, that Jesus, because of Caiaphas, Caiaphas had the authority to make a charge. He did. Now Jesus is standing before Pilate, and here's what happens in, in chapter 19. I know that over this past weekend uh, with Resurrection Sunday and then Good Friday, uh, you know, we, last week we, we did the trial and the betrayal and and the denial of Jesus and the scattering of the disciples, and, and, and now he's standing before this, this trial. Today we will you know, talk about the actual crucifixion and what happened. So then Pilate took Jesus. This is John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. So let's talk about this for a minute because you, know, you always want to try to go to all four Gospels on this, these historical events to grab things that, uh, that you won't see. Uh, because you know all four gospels serve their their purpose. John is going to leave out some details that the other gospels tell us about the crucifixion, but he's also going also going to give us some details uh, that the other gospels don't. And and John even did this last week, giving us some specific names about Peter and and also Malchus, uh, the servant uh, of the high priest. So the flogging here, because this is something we need to get right, because I know I've seen it different ways, different times. What Pilate is doing right here is he goes, I'm going to go ahead and punish Jesus, and I'm hoping that if I'll punish him some, we'll we'll give him a flogging. If we'll do this, maybe that will satisfy the Jews. I can come out and I can say, look, I I want you to to know that I, I listened, I heard you, uh, I, I don't think he deserves a death penalty. We'll see this unpacked today. But I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to to flog him. And this is going to be a new strategy for Pilate to try to set him free. You know, what he, what he tried last week didn't work, where he was going to release Jesus Barabbas. And that didn't work uh, because they cried out, give us Barabbas. And we unpacked that. So now this is a new strategy. Okay, I'm going to punish him, but I'm not going to kill him. And we're done. So that's what he's hoping will happen uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at, at Luke 23, write this down, Luke 23, 
13 through 16, here's what Luke says happened. Pilate says to the Jewish officials that Jesus has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him. Now, what we believe is this, this first beating was not the beating that we talk about where Jesus' flesh was torn and and because the, the Roman officials had two different types of beatings that they would give you. Um, you know, a flogging was, um, uh, I mean, it, it, was, it was rough, but it was less severe uh, than the one that Jesus will then receive, sadly, uh, when the crucifixion happens. They have one that, that they're just trying to punish you and then say, you've learned your lesson, you're back. Then there's a second beating, and there's different Greek names that they use for these. And that second one, which we'll see here momentarily, is usually pre-execution sentence. Uh, this is one after they've sentenced somebody to crucifixion. And what they realize is that crucifixion is such a horrible, terrible, torturous death, it can sometimes go on for days. So what they would do on this second type beating, which is not the one he's getting here, but the second type beating is the one they hope will be so severe that the person will just die quicker on the cross. Now, Jesus is going to receive that beating we'll talk about later, but this is not the beating that he's getting here, the flogging. There's two different words. Uh, so what Pilate is hoping, let's go over here and we'll stripe him a little bit, we'll punish him, and that'll be enough. Uh, of course, we know that um, that's not going to be enough. Uh, so, so, so the soldiers, once they got him, and they're going to they're gonna flog him, and they're going to do this first beating. But they did want to demoralize him. So look at, at verse 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and they arrayed him in a purple robe. Um, they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. This is in verse 3. And struck him with their hands. Now let's, let's unpack what's happening here. Historically, they believe that these Roman soldiers that are doing the flogging Again, this is the first beating. They're doing the flogging that probably this crown of thorns they made to demoralize this, uh, this claim of him being some kind of king. Because as we know, if, if, if you're serving Caesar, you don't acknowledge any other kings. And keep in mind, Pilate and these soldiers are also trying to demoralize the Jewish leaders by even suggesting that Jesus was any threat to anybody. Okay, uh, So what they did is they think what they probably did is they got uh, a crown of thorns that came from what uh, a plant called a, a date palm. Now, these are very long thorns. Um, and then the, the purple robe probably was a robe uh, that had some sort of military significance uh, in the Roman guard, and somebody gave theirs, or they found one that wasn't being used, um, and they put that on him. And, uh, and, and they're doing this you know, to, to mock him as king of the Jews, um, and uh, and you know as, as, as and a threat to Caesar, uh, but it's so interesting that all these things, and we're going to see it again this week, showing that God is in control of all of this. Jesus is is in control of every bit of this, and we're going to see it again today when he says it clearly to Pilate. But here they are mocking Jesus as King of the Jews, but what they don't even realize is in their attempt to mock. The, the person standing before them is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Gentiles. He's the king of kings, both Jew and Gentile. So in their mocking, what they're calling Jesus, they, they have no concept of who they are dealing with. And I think a lot of times we have the same concept in our own lives when we don't take sin seriously. 
uh, and I've told you that before. I, I had I had to be I did an interview this past week about men's ministry uh, on a podcast, and the guy was asking me, the pastor. He said, uh, "You know, what are some things you think we need to do for men in these men's services that we might, might not do sometimes in a, a setting with women and children?" And I said, speaking from my own uh, experience, I believe we must usher men into the presence of a holy God. Uh, I, I said, I, you, you can't play games and, and, and make God out, as we said, to be this big man upstairs or, you know, to turn him in, turn Jesus into some hippie. Uh, what we need to be ushered into, we need to be ushered in to the presence of the great I am. We need to be ushered in into the presence of, of a holy God. We need to fully understand God's mercy. We need to fully understand God's love, but we equally need to understand his authority, uh, his righteousness. We need to understand his holiness, and we need to understand his wrath. Uh, we do, because then when we understand who God really is and we're confronted with his holiness, uh, we'll be a lot like Job when Job, through pain and suffering, was so confronted with God's holiness as he said, before I'd heard of you, but through my pain and suffering, I've been forced to see you for who you really are, and I despise myself. And I repent in ashes and dust. A lot of times the reason why men or anyone, uh, reason why we don't repent is we've never been in the presence of, of, of the actual God. We, we've, never, we've never really confronted it. So we could put crowns of thorns on Jesus' head and we can take, you know, Reese Cup logos and turn that into the name Jesus. And I've even seen people take the Budweiser logo and turn it into Jesus. Some of these silly bumper stickers we have, you know, God is my co-pilot. If God's your co-pilot, the wrong person is driving. And, uh, and so what we need to do is be ushered into the presence of who God really is, not who we keep trying to make him, because what we try to do is dumb him down, just like the ignorance of these Roman soldiers. We try to dumb him down to the point that he's much easier to sin against. And, and that, that's been, that was my problem, and, and I'm going to suggest it's probably the problem of a lot of people, uh, including people watching and listening to this, because you're a human being. And sometimes we haven't done a very good job as a church to introduce you to who God really is. See, we're not really called hashtag blessed and let's do life together. That's not it. That's not the Christian walk at all. The world does that. We're not, we're not hanging out. We're advancing the kingdom of God and we're worshiping the one and only living God who is the beginning and the end, who is holy, holy, holy. And, and we need to tremble I mean, we need, we need, you know, as we found out uh, in, in Acts 14 where, you know, Paul, after what he goes through in Lystra about being stoned and, and, he, and he gets back up, they think he's dead and he comes back and he goes again and even returns back to the same place where he was stoned. And he says, I get it. He said, he said we have to work through many trials and tribulations. Well, you know, our, our faith and our righteousness comes through many trials and tribulations, not, not constantly trying to search for some fun zone. I, I, can I tell you, there's nothing more wonderful than actually knowing who God is and, and being under his authority and being in good standing with him. I, I don't know what's better than that. And once again, through this pandemic, you know, we've been showed, stop trying to make heaven on earth. That This is not heaven, and it never will be. And if we really want to be of, you know, I've heard people say before, well, this person's so heaven-focused, they're no earthly good. You know what? I think that's a false statement. I know why people say that, because once again, somebody's been convicted by somebody actually being heaven-focused. No, I would go as far as to say you can never be any earthly good until you become heaven-focused. 
So, and this is where the the irony of what's happening here with Jesus is, is heartbreaking. But remember, my sin did that to him. All this has happened to Jesus is on me because of my sin. Uh, if you say, well, who crucified Jesus? I did. So let's, uh, let's go on. So in verse 4 and 5, uh, this continues. Pilate went out again, and, and he, he said to them, the Jewish authorities, See, I'm bringing him out so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then he goes on. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Now, there's a lot going on here. Uh, the irony just continues with Pilate and the Roman officials and even the Jewish officials. Behold the man. Now, this is meant to be a mocking of Jesus. And it goes back to what I said a minute ago. What Pilate is trying to do here is mainly to demoralize the Jewish officials by saying, so this is the guy that you're all worried about? We took him back here. We beat him. We put a crown of thorns on him. We put a fake robe on him. We've been mocking him. We've been beating him. And you know what? Nothing's happened to us. What, what kind of threat do you think he is to anybody? Doesn't appear to be a threat. Look, look how he looks now. What threat are you talking about? And so this is going on, but the irony is that Pilate actually says, Behold the man. And the word became flesh. God became a man. Pilate, behold the man. He has no idea what he's really saying, does he? He thinks he's, he thinks he's mocking Jesus, but really what he's sta- saying about Jesus is correct. Behold the ultimate man. Behold the new Adam is what we would say. You know, The first Adam failed. That's not our example of how to be a man. I tell you who's an example of how to be a man is Jesus when God became one. And the word became flesh. God came to us and we could not come to him. Behold the man. I don't know that there's anything that shows more about God being in control is that he's humbling himself and he's allowing this to go on and nobody realizes who they're dealing with. And back again, we have to uh, you know, assess our life, as Paul told us to, to find out if we're even part of the faith. Do we know who we're dealing with? Or have we created a version of Jesus that is blasphemous as well? He's actually displaying his glory as the one and only living God because he's doing this because he knows he's the only sacrifice that could ever save the world. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 6, well, this ain't going to work. You know the Jewish leaders are not going to be satisfied with this. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And then Pilate says to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. So they won't be satisfied with anything other than Jesus being crucified. They're making that very clear. Now, why is Pilate saying, well, then you take him? Well, let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that the Jewish officials are suddenly in charge of who's going to be crucified uh, because uh, they don't have the authority to do that, as they will say here shortly. What Pilate is saying is, I don't find any guilt in him. You bring him to me. You, You bring him to me saying, I'm the one to make the call. So I've made the call, and now you're saying you want something else. 
And what, what Pilate is really saying, so you're in charge now? So you're going to decide what's going to happen to him? Do you have the authority to crucify him? Knowing they don't. The Jewish officials, and you'll see their play here in a minute, they know that they don't. So this is Pilate, once again, in his arrogance, in his weakness, in his cowardice, uh, of, of refusing to just say this is what's going to happen, end of subject. He keeps trying to find another way out, and nothing is working. But he is offended that they have brought him to Jesus, and then, he, then Pilate says, okay, I'll rule on it. I flogged him. I put a crown of thorns on him. We dressed him in a robe. We mocked him. We're done. But now you don't accept that. So then in 7, here's where they, they start trying to get to Pilate, and, and they do. The Jews answered him, We have a law. According to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Now, the law that they're uh, talking about is Leviticus twenty four sixteen. Leviticus 24.16 says, Anyone who blasphemes the name of God, he must be put to death. Now, this is going to throw Pilate a little bit, because Pilate, as you know, if you read all four Gospels, his wife's been talking to him about this guy. What is the truth, this conversation he's had with Jesus? Pilate wants this to be over, okay? And, and he wants to be done with this, but he knows there's something going on with Jesus. He's not real sure what it, what it is. And now they're reminding him, because remember, Pilate is okay if they want to follow down the road of sedition, meaning this guy's a threat to the Roman Empire. He's, uh, he's like Jesus Barabbas. Uh, he too wants to try to overthrow the Roman government. He's going to declare himself a king. And Pilate thinks he's kind of ruled all that out, you know, with the conversations last week uh, with Jesus. And now they're saying, oh, let me, let's remind you now. He claimed to be the Son of God, which we consider to be blaspheming the name, and we have a law that says he needs to be put to death. So now let's, let's look at 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now what does this mean? When Pilate heard this statement about his claims to be the Son of God, he was even more afraid. That's an interesting statement. Pilate now isn't quite sure who he's dealing with. Like I said, he's remembering that conversation about Jesus telling him who he was and, and what is the truth. And uh, now, now they're claiming that Jesus has made the claim that he's divine. And, 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 the, and the Bible documents and John documents that this made Pilate afraid. Now, there's a lot of things we'll get into here in a minute about why he's afraid. Certainly, he's got some superstition to him, which we'll see here in the next verse. Um, you know, we, we don't, we don't, we're not sure that Pilate really is seeking the truth about who Jesus is. But, you know, the Romans had all sorts of different gods, and there was some, a lot of superstition that went through their belief system. And this is making Pilate uneasy. But Pilate also knows that he's been placed, you know, in charge of, of, of this region and, and he really doesn't need trouble. Uh, Pilate, if you go through the history, Pilate was, had, had all kinds of uprisings and stuff. You know, at some point, he doesn't want Tiberius to say, can you not get this under control? Uh, so he's got all this going on, and he needs it to end. Look at, look at verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So... This question goes back again. 
Pilate isn't really trying to seek the truth. He hasn't been the whole time. What is truth? You remember this from last week. Pilate is wanting to kind of almost like Herod was. I'm kind of intrigued with the, the mystery of this Jesus person. Are you some sort of mystic or something? I'd like to kick the tires on it. But Jesus, knowing the heart of every man, knows that Pilate isn't really seeking the truth. And if Jesus tells him who he is, which he's tried to, Pilate's not going to hear it. Jesus also knows that he's resolved himself to the cross, so he doesn't answer him at all. He just doesn't give him any answer. Uh, now, this is going to bother Pilate, as you see in verse 10. Uh, verse 10, Pilate says to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So this is the arrogance of Pilate. Keep in mind, he's got a lot of power in the Roman Empire. And he walks into Jesus, this guy who they put a crown of thorns on, put in a robe who's been flogged. And he says, I, you know, who are you? Uh, where'd you come from? And Jesus didn't answer him. So now Pilate is offended, and he's trying now to, to, to wield his authority and tell him, do you not know who I am? Do, do you not understand that I have the authority on whether you're going to be released or whether you're going to be crucified? I'm going to make that call. Now see, how, how, how wrong is Pilate, and Jesus is about to clarify that in one of the most wonderful statements by Jesus, uh, who's going to remind Pilate who's in control. But I thought to myself, how many times in my life and how embarrassing it is and how sad it is of how much of my life that I may not have told God that I had the authority on whether he'd be released or whether he'd be crucified. But I did spend a lot of my life telling God what he could and could not do in my life. Well, you know, how, how much authority I would give him. You say, well, Rick, you, no, no, that's the same thing. That, that's me saying to God, now I have some authority in my life. You don't. I'll live however I want to live, and I'm going to try to come up with some version of the gospel where you're going to save me anyway. And I think sometimes we need to rethink that. You know, if, if, if you're still thinking that you're the authority of your life, then you're like, like I was. We're no different than Pilate. We're telling Jesus that he didn't have any authority that we do. And I've certainly done that uh, in my life, telling God what he can and cannot do in my life, allowing him authority where I allow him authority, but letting him know that overall I'm the one in control of my life. Yeah, that's the reason why these little pandemics come along. Or, you know, it doesn't have to be a pandemic. All these little trials and tribulations come along. I can remember Sherry talking about, you know, one of the toughest ones we've been through. And, of course, that's the earthly death uh, of, our, of our youngest son that we reference a lot because it's, it's a marker. Uh, when, when you realize that your son is dying and you can't save him, you realize pretty quick that you're not God. And it humbles you. It's humbling for something like that to happen and you can't do anything about it. Do you feel that way now? How, how many parts of your life right now can you really control? You thought you could. But you realize like that, it can all go away. But then you start going to God and saying, you're in control, right? 
And he says, oh, I've always been in control. You're just now acknowledging it. <laughs> so, so yeah, we, we've said something similar to God. I know I have. I certainly can't speak to you. You have to, or for you, you have to assess that yourself. 19 and 11, and here comes Jesus. I love this. Reminding Pilate of who has authority and who does not. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Okay, so let's unpack this. The first part's pretty straightforward. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's completely straightforward because Jesus is saying, let me correct you. You have no authority over me. Remember, he's already said that no one takes his life from him. He has the authority to lay it down, and he has the authority to, to raise it back up again, which he did. Well, in this case, he's, he's, he's emphasizing with great detail to Pilate, all of you that have this earthly authority, you only have it because my father has allowed it. President Trump, uh, uh, Macron in, in France, uh, fill in the blank all over the world. Uh, fill in the blank of your governors all of a sudden right now that think they have all this power. Uh, they don't have any power over anything unless God allows it. Romans 13, when we studied the book of Romans. Um, I, I love what Steve Farrar says. He says, when it comes to world leaders and the pilots of the world or the, the President Trumps of the world or President whoever, doesn't matter which president it is, uh, any, anywhere, any place, that those people can't even breathe unless God allows them their next breath. That's, that's, that's how weak they are compared to the real authority. And that is the great I am. And Jesus is reminding Pilate of, you're nothing but someone who's been allowed some authority by my father. If he didn't want you to have it, you wouldn't. We're letting this happen. You're not in control of this at all. God is sovereign, even over our earthly leaders. The question is, back to what we said before, so what are our earthly leaders for, Rick? Well, mainly Romans 13 says to keep us in line. But secondly, they're placed there for two things, those equal pillars again, God's wrath and God's judgment. I mean, in God's mercy. Sometimes they're there as God's mercy. Sometimes they're there as God's wrath. Sometimes they're a little bit of both. You see it right here. Uh, so then let's get into the, therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. That's intriguing, isn't it? Uh, greater sin. Well, is, is, so who has the greater sin? Is he talking about Judas? Because ultimately Judas, you know, went in and said, I'll cut a deal with you guys. I'll take the 30 pieces of silver. I'll give you Jesus. Is he talking about, is he talking about Judas is, or committed a greater sin than Pilate? And this can get really deep, and we don't have time for all this today, but I'll give you kind of the uh, C student from Calhoun County version of this. So then it could be Caiaphas. Is he talking about Caiaphas? Because Caiaphas has brought him and handed him over to Pilate, and it was Caiaphas who had uh, the authority. Um, the bottom line is that the initiative is, is sin by all. Caiaphas took the initiative to hand over Jesus. Judas took the initiative to hand over Jesus. And Pilate is spineless, but he did not initiate this trial. The people who initiated it were Judas and ultimately Caiaphas. So the one who initiated all this 
has, has the greater sin. And then you get into, well, is there free will in all this? Is there God's sovereignty? I know out there there's, a, there's different the, theology on that. And uh, from what I've gathered in scripture, to, scripture and read it from one end to the other, it's both. How does that happen? I don't know. <laughs> I think some of us, we just, we just can't admit that there's things about God that we really just don't completely know. There's a lot of things we do know. Uh, so it's not out like we don't know anything about God. Uh, but uh, how God is sovereign and allows free will at the same time, I can basically understand that because he's God. But do I completely understand it in my finite brain? No. Was Jesus going to the cross? Yes. Did these people have a choice on whether they were going to initiate it or not? Yes. Did God know what decision they were going to make? Yes. How does that work, Rick? I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but I know that's what's taking place. And I know Jesus just said to Pilate that the ones who initiated all this have the greater sin. Well, how can they have sin if they didn't have any choice on what happened? So, yes, it was going to happen, but how it was going to happen, uh, it's kind of like what I say a lot of times about the, the, the day I was born and the day I'm going to die. Nothing I do about it. Psalms 139, 13 through 16 says clearly that when I was woven together in my mother's womb, that God knew me intricately. He knew the, my inner parts. He knew the number of my days. They were all written before I had lived one. I know that Job says there's nothing that a man can do to add even a, uh, an hour to his life or a day. I can't remember his time frame, but ultimately says we can't add any time to our life. However, how effective my life is and how sinful my life is, I choose. Like, uh, like I talked about some of you with my weight. Uh, uh, there were a lot of years I justified the gluttony in my life uh, because I just enjoyed it. I didn't want to give it up. And so I tried to justify it. And when I've decided to, and I've got a lot of work to do still, but I have addressed it. When I started exercising and eating better and eating less, I knew I wasn't doing that to extend my life because that was under God's sovereignty completely. But I know that I had a choice on how effective my life would be. Did I care about my witness? Yeah. I would love to tell you that I tried to address it because I thought it was uh, you know, selfish and not treating my wife well. You know, to say, why should my wife have to put up with an uh, obesely overweight, uh, gluttonous husband? You know, would I want her to be that way? Probably not. But I was able to do it, but she had to live to a different standard. I'd love to say that that convicted me. I'm glad, I think that's part of it, but that's really not what convicted me. Uh, if I said, well, my children should have a dad that can actually shoot basketball with them or go outside and play with them or take them hunting and be able to go up and down hollows and go fishing and not, not be, able to, be able to do that without having to you know, stop and put my hands on my knees because I can't breathe, that really would have been a great motivation. But apparently that wasn't it because I went on a long time knowing those two things and it didn't do it. No, what, what happened with me dealing with the gluttony in my life was not to extend my life. You, you think the doctors didn't tell me, hey, watch out, you know, this, this is not healthy? Of course they did. I didn't care. No, what finally did it was when I realized that I was in sin. I was choosing to live deliberate, perpetual sin 
and I didn't care how effective I could be for the kingdom. And the fact that most people don't like to follow an obese man who looks like he has no self-control. Didn't extend my life, but it has made my life more effective. And I address it because I don't want to be in sin. So I had, I had choices I had to make on, on how I live my life, but I don't have any choice on about the day I'm going to die. So this is kind of um, another example of what we're talking about here. But Jesus does make it clear. It's those who initiated this trial that have created greater sin than even Pilate. Pilate's just being spineless. And he'll be, he'll be held accountable for the fact that he was spineless. Uh, so let's go, to, let's go to 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now this is what I was talking about a minute ago. They know that Pilate doesn't want trouble from Tiberius, the Caesar at the time. I, you don't want trouble with Caesar. So... Pilate knows that Jesus does not deserve death. He's already said that. But the Jews remind Pilate that he doesn't want trouble from, from the ultimate authority, and that's Tiberius at the time. And Tiberius was paranoid. He was, uh, you know, all of these Roman uh, Caesars, they had the ultimate power over this gigantic empire. But guess what? Everybody else wants it too. So they, they're never really at peace. Somebody's always trying to kill them. Somebody's always trying to assassinate them. Somebody's always trying to overthrow them. And his subordinates, uh, subordinates uh, always made Tiberius very, very paranoid. And he was, he was known to act quick and harsh against any uprising that he was concerned about. And Pilate had already been told, I don't, I don't want any uprisings from these Jewish people. And the Jews knew this. But let me tell you this, this is where the Jews, these particular Jewish people uh, show their awful sin. They're willing to act like that they are more loyal to Caesar, that they're more loyal to Caesar than they are to God. They claim that they're these wonderful lovers of Caesar who blasphemes and calls himself God. And they're saying, we're more loyal to Caesar than even you are, Pilate. Blasphemy. But they're willing to do it because they're obsessed with crucifying Jesus. And it worked. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he set him down on the judgment seat. Uh, it's a place called the Stone Pavement. Uh, in Aramaic, it's Gabatha. Gabatha. Uh, and I did some research on this. It was, it was about... It was really, really large uh, area, and uh, there's been some, some ancient finds that they think they may have found it uh, and all this. But bottom line is, when Caesar set you down on the judgment seat or Pilate set you down on the judgment seat, any of the high-ranking officials, uh, this is when they were going to hand down their judgment. So verse 14, um, when we talk about preparation day, I want you to hear, hear this as well. So now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. Um, now, there's, there's been all kinds of talk about the Passover meal. And, and if they're saying it's preparation day, that means that the, the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper was not a, 
a Passover supper, but we, we look at the elements of that and we think that it was. And uh, most of the commentators come down and say what John's talking about is certainly was Passover week. We know that. But when he says preparation, he's really just talking about the Sabbath. There's, there, there's a preparation for any Sabbath. And he's just saying this particular preparation is on the week of the Sabbath. But I'm not talking about that this is the this is the Passover meal or this because that's already happened. He's saying we got to get prepared for the Sabbath, but this ha- this Sabbath happens to be coming on the week of Passover. That's where most people land. So they they say there really is no issue with the Last Supper, you know, being the Passover supper in this statement by John. Uh, but anyway, so that they, they believe it was the meal that the the meal with the disciples was the Passover meal. What John's talking about here is the preparation meal, which is coming. We got to get everything prepared because we can't do anything once the Sabbath starts at 6 p.m. Uh, and that's what he's talking about here. It just happened to be on the week of the Passover. Well, we know they have him trapped right now. Um, and so you, you see what happens next. Um, first of all, Pilate is trying to mock them again by saying, here's your king here. Uh, and, and then he asked them, uh, uh, what do you want us to do with it? And they cried out in 15, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Should, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Wow. What a moment. Blasphemy. These same Jewish leaders that know that they were never supposed to declare Caesar as their king spiritually, now cry out, Jesus is not our king, Caesar is our king. How many times have we done the same thing? Jesus is not our king, this world is our king. My money is my king. My hobbies are my king. The way I make a living is my king. My, my, my children are my king. My, my flesh is my king. We reject King Jesus because we have not made him Lord of our life. And so Pilate says, here is your king. Do you want me to crucify your king? And they say, this is not our king. Caesar is our king. And then Pilate in 16, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. He sits down on the tribunal and he hands him over. And uh, they say when he's handing them over, he's not handing them off to the Jewish leaders to take him. What he's saying is, I'll hand him over to, uh, to the soldiers here, and I will meet your demand. You'll find that to tell you that it's the soldiers in Luke 23, 24. Luke 23, 20, 24. So John's account now of the crucifixion uh, is, is very close to Mark's account of the crucifixion. But he does omit some of the details that Mark and others give us. Uh, but he also gives us other details uh, that aren't reported elsewhere, including the last cry that Jesus gives from the cross. Uh, so um, they took Jesus and they went out uh, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, uh, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. I've, I've seen this before. They, they, I've been to Israel and They'll, they'll set you up and they'll show you where they think the crucifixion took place, which was right outside the city because the Romans wanted you to see this. They wanted it to be public. 
and um, and you can literally look into that that hillside, and it looks like a skull. Um, and and John talks about this. Uh, the soldiers are in charge now, and we believe this is where, if you look at the other gospels, where he took that second beating, um, and um, so that he'll die quicker. He's carrying his own cross. This is typical uh, in Roman culture. Now, remember, I know a lot of times you, you see Jesus depicted carrying the entire cross. That's really not accurate historically. Uh, he's carrying the, the cross member, you know, the, the, the part that goes um, horizontal, and they would carry that on their shoulders because the beam is already up to where they're going to go. It's already been uh, laid out, and then they'll take him when he gets there, and they'll actually take uh, the horizontal part and attach it to the, the vertical part that's already there. Um, uh, so, it, as I said, this was a public place in verse 18. Uh, there they crucified him uh, with uh, two others on either side and Jesus between them. Um, it, it's always a public place. And crucifixion was so bad that no Roman citizen could be crucified without the sanction of the emperor. That's the only way anybody, a Roman citizen, unless the emperor himself said that a Roman citizen was going to be crucified, you could not crucify them because it was such a horrible way to die. And ultimately, they die of asphyxiation. Uh, and it can go on for days uh, as they try to push up and breathe, and eventually they, uh, they, they suffocate. Um, uh, so here's what happened in 19 through 22. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, as we said, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This was, a, this was customary. Uh, for the authorities uh, to say to one of these soldiers, I want everybody to see as this person, you know, when Jesus tells us, uh, you know, in, in Luke 9, uh, that if we're going to follow him to deny ourselves and pick up our cross daily, when, when someone was carrying uh, the cross in Roman culture, when you saw that, that person was going to die. And that's why Jesus said, we pick up our cross every day. We die to self and we're willing to die for Jesus. We die every day. That's what that means. It doesn't mean that you're going to have some inconveniences or you might have arthritis. What that means, that arthritis is not your cross to bear. No, your cross to bear is I die to Jesus. I die with Jesus. I'm crucified with Jesus. I give up all my rights. I belong to him. I die daily. I deny myself. And so in the Roman culture, uh, these people carrying their crosses were going to die, but usually they would write what their offense was, and they would hang it around their neck, and then when they got up to be crucified, they would take it off of their neck, and then they would uh, attach it to the cross, and then when they lift it up, you would see, if you're walking by, you know what the Roman uh, authorities wanted you to know, don't do this. If you do this written above their head, this is what happens to you. And so to mock the Jewish authorities for one and final time, Pilate wants it on there that he is being crucified because he claimed to be a king. He wants the society to know, I don't acknowledge this deity of him claiming to be the son of God or blaspheming. I do not let this happen because of what the Jewish people said he did. We're going to crucify him because he tried to commit sedition against the Roman Empire.
I want it up there that he claimed to be king of the Jews. And, and of course, to mock the Jews, he would not put what they wanted, that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He wanted it to be up there. He is. He, he certainly is the king of the Jews, meaning we won't allow anybody to say these kind of things. Um, and so that was him kind of saving face a little bit and mocking them uh, for, the, uh, for the final time. And the irony of all this, again, is that he is the king of the Jews and the Gentiles. So let's look at 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, soldier also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Uh, so they, um, they said to one another, let us not tear it up, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now this was written hundreds of years before this happened in Psalms twenty-two, eighteen, We believe that Jesus' clothes are talking about, when they talk about these different parts, probably a belt, probably sandals, and a head covering. So that makes three things for, for, the, for the soldiers. But we also know that there's a tunic, and it was so nice, they didn't want to have to tear it up. So what they were going to do is gamble to see who would get the fourth uh, piece of clothing, which was a full tunic that Jesus wore uh, as his outer garment. And, uh, and John is, is making the point that they didn't realize that they were fulfilling Scripture, Psalms twenty two eighteen because they became concerned about not tearing up this tunic. Uh, and we think uh, that that means that there were four soldiers that were working with him. And for them to divide up the clothing and the belongings of someone being crucified was very normal. Uh, but the way that they went about it actually fulfilled the Scripture, which is incredible. Once again, God in control. And John wants us to know that they did this. In 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. So we believe this tells us there's four women there. Uh, we think that's what John is saying because he's only naming two, uh, meaning Mary the wife of Clopas he wants to name, Mary Magdalene he wants to name, and the other two would have been Jesus' mother Mary and then her sister. So we're talking four women here. Uh, and, the, and, and what they're doing is they're going to stand by to make per, provisions uh, for what's going to happen. Uh, uh, and, and then you look at uh, 29, I mean 26 through 29. When Jesus saw this, his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Uh, Jesus, even in his time of destruction, even in his time of pain and suffering, he is still looking at his earthly mother, and he's making uh, provisions for her. Now, I know the first thing that may be coming to your mind right now that always comes to mind, what about his earthly brothers? Where's James? Where's Jude? We know that he had earthly brothers. Why are they not taking control of their mother? Because they, dealt, they thought Jesus was a loon. That's why. They didn't believe in the, the claims of their brother, and they say historically they probably were not even there. They thought to themselves, look what he's doing to mom. You know, Now he's got himself crucified, acting like he's the son of God, and they were angry about it. They didn't believe it. They, they rejected his claims. You know, They don't come around to after the resurrection. So here's Jesus saying, John, I know you're confused, but you're here, and you've been with me up until this point. You're, you're going to get this right as well, but you're here with my mother when my biological, 
half-brothers are not here, so I know you'll take care of her, so I make provisions for her. And then John gets that responsibility, and it says he did take care of her. So then next, it says uh, this, this, this wonderful moment uh, that happens on the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, and he said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. I, I, I thirst. Knowing that all things had been accomplished in order to fulfill Scripture, he said, I thirst. Write down Psalm 69, 21, and you will see this thing about him being offered the sour wine and all this has been in prophecy. Now keep in mind, verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. He, he, had, he had been denying himself comfort. They tried to give him stuff on the way that had you know, uh, uh, properties in it that would, that, would, that would numb the pain of what he was going through, and he denied himself that all the way. But now he says that he thirsts and that he will take something, this sour wine. Why is this happening? Well, first of all, fulfill all, uh, all Scripture, yes. But also, he says, I thirst, and now he wants something, and they take a hyssop branch of all things. Now, this is a bush. This is not what you would use to lift something up to somebody. But if you go to the Passover, God says that the angel of death is going to pass over you And to be sure the angel of death passes by your house, take the blood of a perfect lamb, and with a hyssop branch, cover your doorpost with the blood of the perfect lamb, and death will pass you by. So, of course, it's a hyssop branch. To moisten the mouth of the ultimate lamb of God, he says, I thirst so that they can moisten his mouth, because he has fulfilled all Scripture. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, now his palate has been moistened. He said clearly, it is finished. Greek word, tetelestai. In the Greek uh, culture, if you owed someone a debt, and if they forgave that debt or you paid it in full, they would take the paperwork of that debt and they would stamp it to telestai. Debt paid in full. And Jesus says from the cross for you and me to telestai. The debt is paid. It is finished. That's why he wanted his mouth moistened. So all of time could hear those wonderful, wonderful words of hope Even in the worst of times, it is finished. Oh, so now we understand John 16, 33 a little better, don't we? I say this so that you have peace in me. In this world, you will face tribulation. But take heart, be courageous, be joyful, be hopeful. Because I've overcome the world. It is finished. To tell us that. Since it was the day of preparation, in verse 31, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that the legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. The Jews say, look, we, it, was, it was bad form for dead bodies. to The Romans would leave them on the cross and let them rot for days. But the Jews 
going into the Sabbath said, this is, this is not normal practice was to leave them up there. But the Jews said, because of Deuteronomy 21, write this down, 22 and 23, that these bodies should not remain on these posts overnight. Such a person is under God's curse, and to leave them there uh, exposes God's cur- curse on the land. So they wanted these legs broken. They break their legs because they can't push up and breathe anymore. They'll die quicker. Uh, but we also know that when they went to Jesus, in verse 32 and 33, listen to this. So the soldiers came and broke the, broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. And we know, if you know Scripture about this, um, this was also to fulfill Scripture that his bones would not be broken. John's going to tell us this. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water, this was just to make sure. Uh, he who saw it uh, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. Why is John saying this? And I know we're running out of time, but we're going to make it, okay? Well, they, they, they went to Jesus and he's already dead to fulfill prophecy because we can't have the lamb with a broken bone, but also because he'd been had the double floggings, his body probably just uh, could not take it any longer. Uh, but what John is saying in 34 is when he sees the soldier take the spear into Jesus' side, in the blood and the water, there's a lot of medical that goes with this. I, it really, I know some people try to make it out more than this. This is just what happens to the body when it's in the state that it is. You're going to see a mixture of blood and water coming out. But the ultimate thing John wants you to see in this is not that. What he wants you to see is I was standing there. I saw them do this. Jesus was dead. Because, you know, there were some theories out there that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. The Romans are pretty good at that, folks. They don't, they don't let you tell them to take people down, and you're not sure if they're dead or not. What a ridiculous theology for some of you that try to reject the resurrection by saying that Jesus didn't die on the cross. This is lunacy. And John is saying, this is lunacy. I was there. I saw that he was dead. And you know what? To make sure I didn't have any misunderstanding, one of the Roman soldiers took a spear and rammed it into Jesus' body, and water and blood came out. I say this to let you know I was there. I I witnessed this. He was dead. That's what John's trying to make you to understand. He says it very, very clear. He who saw it himself has borne witness, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may also believe, meaning believe that he really did raise himself from the dead. You can't believe he raised himself from the dead if you don't think he really died. And John said, I saw it. He's dead. 36. For these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled, and we just talked about this. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. All of this is fulfilling Scripture. Uh, Exodus uh, uh, Exodus twelve forty six and Numbers nine twelve uh, says that you cannot have one bone of the Passover lamb. He cannot have one bone that is broken. And, of course, the ultimate Lamb of God would not have a bone that was broken. Psalms 3420, write this down. God cares for the righteous man. He protects all his bones. None will be broken. So there's a lot going on here. And you can also look at um, the part about the piercing of Jesus in Zechariah 1210. So write that down. Let me finish up. We're going to be maybe a minute or two over. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, don't miss that because he was a high-ranking Jewish official, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate 
that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. He appears in all four Gospels. Uh, and he, he, was, he, he took over the burial of Jesus' body. He was very wealthy. He was a disciple of Jesus. John says he was trying to keep that on the down low for fear of persecution from the Jews. But now he's publicly coming out and saying, I will take this body. A lot of this says that Pilate gave him permission. Pilate's in total control of this because this is once again Pilate acknowledging that Jesus really didn't do anything that deserved this. A lot of, a lot of the theologians and, and, and journalists of the day think that's why Pilate gave in. Uh, he, he, he said, sure, take him and, and bury the body. Now, Nicodemus shows up. Remember Nicodemus? Uh, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds in weight. That's important. That kind of spice, that level, that amount of spice and things to make the body smell good and to anoint the body and do all this, this level was usually held only for people of royalty. I mean, it, it, that, when, when Herod was buried, I mean, Jesus' amount is in the same neighborhood. So Nicodemus, who also was wealthy, is bringing the kind of spices and elements you need for the burial of the body that you would bring for somebody who was of great importance. Again, this is Nicodemus coming out of the light. He met Jesus in the light, now he's coming out in the day and saying that I'm with Jesus. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So it, you look at this, you see Joseph of Arimathea is taking care of all the legal stuff that needs to be done to get the body from Pilate. Nicodemus handled the preparation of the body, and they, bought, they bound the body, then they would take the body as they bound it, and they would put the spices in there because they did not embalm. Only John tells us about the, the garden uh, being there with the tomb. He's the only one that mentions this. Uh, no one else uh, had ever been laid in this tomb. He's likely making this point so that no one can say that there was another body that was in there as well uh, and that Jesus was the only body there. And he's also telling us about the garden because he's preparing us uh, for the encounter of Mary Magdalene and uh, the gardener. So as we, as we take this and we apply it to our lives today, there's so much to apply. Uh, we come back next week, we'll talk about the resurrection. And then the following week, we'll talk about Jesus and, the, and his final teachings to the disciples and to us after the resurrection. And then we'll talk about the next study. Uh, I, I think as we close right now, this is a great time for us to ask the question, who are we in this documentation? Uh, do, do, do we look at our life and realize that even on the other side of the resurrection in our life right now, we have the same attitude toward Jesus that, that these people had, uh, that he isn't who he says he is, or that we're still in authority? Uh, or that somehow we think we're not guilty of putting Jesus on the cross. It's somewhere we think we're not in equal need of redemption. Look, this world's always talking about equality. Let me tell you where we're all equal, right there at the foot of the cross. An equal need of redemption. Jesus has done everything that he was supposed to do. And now it's your time and my time to respond. And I think the crucifixion demands a response. So what is yours? Let's pray.
Thank you for this time together, Lord. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone watching this or listening to this that, that knows what you've done for them, but they have never repented of sin and have never said, I'll take the free gift of redemption and salvation. Lord, thank you for doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. And today, I repent of my sins. Lord, I'm sorry that I nailed you to the cross. I know that your Father's wrath had to be poured out on sin, and I caused the sin that you had no part in, and you stood in and took that wrath for me. Thank you, Jesus. Today, would you forgive me of my sins? I know that you love me. Will you start teaching me to love you? And then when I love you, I'll obey you. And may I start to abide in you so I can see the transformation in my life that only you can provide. I want that peace that you say can only be found in you. And today, Lord, I ask that you give it to me. You know, if you prayed something like this today or something is stirring in you, I'll help you. Rick at rickandbubba.com if I can help you in any way. Jesus, thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being with us. Hey, this is Rick, and that concludes this week's Bible study. Thank you so much for being with us. If you'd like to go back and hear other Bible studies or maybe some that you've missed even in this series, you can find them by clicking the media button at burgessministries.com.